Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a reading by Paul King, pjk.scripps.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A short account of the history of mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter sixteen The Life and Works of Newton. Part two. Instigated by Halley, Newton now returned to the problem of gravitation, and before the autumn of sixteen eighty four he had worked out the substance of propositions one through nineteen, twenty one, thirty, thirty two through thirty five in the first book of the Principia these together with the notes on the laws of motion and various lemmas were read for his lectures in the michaelmas term sixteen eighty four in november halley received newton's promised communication which probably consisted of the substance of propositions one eleven and either seventeen or corollaries one of thirteen and thereupon he again went to cambridge where he saw a curious treatise de motu drawn up since august most likely this contained newton's manuscript notes of the lectures above alluded to these notes are now in the university library and are headed de motu corporum halley begged that the results might be published and finally secured a promise that they should be sent to the royal society they were accordingly communicated to the society not later than february sixteen eighty five in the paper de motu which contained the substance of the following propositions in the principia book one propositions one four six seven ten eleven fifteen seventeen thirty two and book two propositions two three and four it seems also to have been due to the influence and tact of halley at this visit in november sixteen eighty four that newton undertook to attack the whole problem of gravitation and practically pledged himself to publish his results as yet newton had not determined the attraction of a spherical body on an external point nor had he calculated the details of the planetary motions even if the members of the solar system could be regarded as points the first problem was solved in sixteen eighty five probably either in january or february no sooner to quote from dr galisher's address on the bicentenary of the publication of the principia had newton proved the superb theorem and we know from his own words that he had no expectation of so beautiful a result till it emerged from his mathematical investigation that all the mechanism of the universe at once lay spread before him when he discovered the theorems that from the first three sections of book one when he gave them in his lectures of sixteen eighty four he was unaware that the sun and earth exerted their attractions as if they were but points how different must these propositions have seemed to newton's eyes when he realized that these results which he had believed to be only approximately true when applied to the solar system were really exact 
Hitherto, they had been only true in so far as he could regard the sun as a point compared to the distance of the planets, or the earth as a point compared to the distance of the moon, a distance amounting to only about sixty times the earth's radius, but now they were mathematically true, excepting only for the slight deviation from a perfectly spherical form of the sun, earth, and planets. We can imagine the effect of this sudden transition from approximation to exactitude in stimulating Newton's mind to still greater efforts. It was now in his power to apply the mathematical analysis with absolute precision to the actual problems of astronomy. Of the three fundamental principles applied in the Principia, we may say that the idea that every particle attracts every other particle in the universe was formed at least as early as 1666. The law of equable distribution of areas, its consequences, and the fact that if the law of attraction were that of the inverse square of the orbit of a particle about a center of force would be a conic, were proved in sixteen seventy nine and lastly the discovery that a sphere whose density at any point depends only on the distance from the centre attracts an external point as if the whole mass were collected at its centre were made in sixteen eighty five it was this last discovery that enabled him to apply the first two principles to the phenomenon of bodies of finite size the draft of the first book of the Principia was finished before the summer of 1685, but the corrections and additions took some time, and the book was not presented to the Royal Society until April 28, 1686. This book is given up to the consideration of the motion of particles or bodies in free space, either in known orbits or under the action of known forces, or under their mutual attraction. In it, Newton generalizes the law of attraction into a statement that every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle with a force which varies directly as the product of their masses and inversely as the square of the distance between them, and he thence deduces the law of attraction for spherical shells of constant density. The book is prefaced by an introduction on the science of dynamics. The second book of the Principia was completed by the summer of 1686. This book treats of motion in a resting medium and of hydrostatics and hydrodynamics with a special application to waves, tides, and acoustics. He concludes it by shewing that the Cartesian theory of vortices is inconsistent both with the known facts and with the laws of motion. The next nine or ten months were devoted to the third book, probably for this he had originally no materials ready in it the theorems obtained in the first book are applied to the chief phenomenon of the solar system the masses and distances of the planets and wherever sufficient data existed of their satellites are determined in particular the motion of the moon the various inequalities therein and the theory of the tides are worked out in detail he also investigates the theory of comets, shews that they belong to the solar system, explains how from three observations the orbit can be determined, and illustrates his results by considering certain special comets. 
the third book as we have it is but little more than a sketch of what newton had finally proposed to himself to accomplish his original scheme is among the portsmouth papers and his notes shew that he continued to work at it for some years after the publication of the first edition of the principia the most interesting of his memoranda are those in which by means of fluxions he has carried out his results beyond the point at which he was able to translate them into geometry footnote i take this opportunity of saying that i hope shortly to publish a memoir on the history and compilation of the principia the following brief summary of the contents of the work will give the reader a general idea of its arrangement the principia is preceded by a preface in which newton says that his object is to apply mathematics to the phenomena of nature among these phenomena motion is one of the most important now motion is the effect of force and though he does not know what is the nature or origin of force still many of its effects can be measured and it is these that form the subject matter of the work the work begins therefore naturally with an introduction on dynamics or the science of motion this commences with the eight definitions of the various terms such as mass momentum and so on newton then lays down three laws of motion which are incapable of exact proof but are confirmed partly by direct experiments partly by the agreement with observation of the deductions from them from these he deduces six fundamental principles of mechanics and adds an appendix on the motion of falling bodies projectiles oscillations impact and the mutual attractions of two bodies the most important deduction is that of the parallelogram of velocities accelerations and forces the first book of the principia is on the motion of bodies in free space and is divided into fourteen sections the first section consists of eleven preliminary lemmas treated by the method of prime and ultimate ratios and not by that of indivisibles the second section commences by shewing that if a body such as a planet revolve in an orbit subject to a force tending to a fixed point such as the sun the areas swept out by radii drawn from the body to the point are in one plane and are proportional to the times of describing them and conversely if the areas be proportional to the times the force acting on the body must be directed to the point newton then shews how if the orbit be known and the centre of force be given the law of force can be determined and he finds the law for various curves in the third section he applies these propositions to a body which describes a conic section about a focus and proves that the force must vary inversely as the square of the distance and that kepler's third law would necessarily be true of such a system conversely he proves that if a body were projected in any way and subject to a central force which varied according to this law then it must move in a conic section having the centre of force in a focus he concludes proposition seventeen corollaries three and four with a suggestion as to how the effects of distributing forces should be calculated this was first done by the brilliant investigations of laplace and lagrange 
and laplace says that lagrange's paper in the berlin memoirs for seventeen eighty six on which the modern treatment of the subject is founded was suggested by these remarks of newton the fourth and fifth sections are devoted to the geometry of conic sections especially to the construction of conics which satisfy five conditions in section four one of the conditions is that the focus is given this includes the problem of finding the path of a comet from three observations which newton says he found the most difficult problem of any which he had to solve curiously enough he gave a second solution of the problem in book three proposition forty one in which he recommended as more simple but which is inapplicable in practice the sixth section is devoted to determining what at any given time is the velocity and what is the position of a body which is describing a given conic about a center of attraction in a focus together with various converse problems to effect this newton had to find the area of a sector of a conic this is easily done for the parabola he then endeavours to shew that the exact quadrature of any closed oval curve having no infinite branches such as the ellipse is impossible the proof is not correct as it stands since the result is not true for ovals of the form y to the power of two m equals the quantity a to the power of two n minus x to the power of two n all multiplied by two to the power of two m times n to the power of two m multiplied by x to the power of two m times two n minus one where m and n are positive integers newton seems himself to have felt some doubt about inserting it though he believed the result to be true an exact quadrature being impossible he proceeds to give three ways two arithmetical and one geometrical of approximating to the sectorial area of an ellipse as closely as is desired the seventh section is given up to the discussion of motion in a straight line under a force which varies inversely as a square of the distance and its comparison with the motion in a conic under the same force he concludes by giving a general solution for all the problems considered in this section for any law of force he here determines geometrically what is equivalent to finding the integral of x divided by the square root of the quantity ax minus x squared the eighth section contains a general solutions for any orbit described under any central force of some of the problems previously considered in proposition forty he states that the kinetic energy acquired by a body in moving from one point to another is equal to the total work done by the force between those two points in the ninth section he discusses the case where the orbit is in motion in its own plane round the centre of force and treats in detail of the motion of the apse line and the forces by which a given motion would be produced newton applied this reasoning proposition forty five corollary two to the case of the moon but the resulting motion of the apses only came out about one-half of the actual amount the approximation was in fact not carried to a sufficiently high order newton was aware of the discrepancy and as he explained the similar difficulty in the case of the nodes it had been long suspected uh, goldfrey's lunar theory second edition article sixty eight that this scolium of the first edition uh, to book three proposition thirty five meant that he had found the explanation
nowhere in the principia does he however give any hint as to how this was effected and that the true explanation of a difference which had long formed an obstacle to the universal acceptance of the newtonian system was first given by clairaut in seventeen fifty two the portsmouth papers contain newton's original work and shew that he had obtained the true value by carrying the approximation to a sufficiently high order it also seems clear from these papers that newton gave the corollary to book one proposition forty five as a mere illustration to the motion of the apses and orbits which are nearly circular and did not mean it to apply to the moon but by an inadvertence in the second and third editions a reference to it as an authenticity for a result connected with the moon was added which would naturally deceive any reader newton left most of the revision to the second edition to cotes and it is probable that the mistake is due to a blunder of the editor other questions connected with lunar and planetary irregularities are also discussed in this proposition but the extreme conclusions of newton misled all the early commentators and even laplace in his systeme du monde published in seventeen ninety six speaks of newton as having only roughly sketched out this part of the subject leaving it to be completed when the calculus should be further perfected but in the last volume of his mecanique celeste published in eighteen twenty five he says that on more careful reading he has no hesitation in regarding it as among the most profound parts of the work the tenth section is devoted to the consideration of motion of bodies along given surfaces but not in planes passing through the centre of force with special reference to the vibration of pendulums and the determination of the accelerating effect of gravity in connection with the latter problem newton investigates the chief geometrical properties of cycloids epicycloids and hypocycloids in the eleventh section are considered the problems connected with motions in orbits where the centre of force is disturbed or where the moving body is disturbed by other forces until calculus of variations was invented by lagrange in seventeen fifty five it was impossible to do more than sketch out the principles on which the problem should be solved and laplace in his mecanique celeste was the first to work out most of the questions in any detail newton commences by considering the disturbance produced by the mutual action of two bodies revolving around one another he then proceeds to consider the problem of three or more bodies which mutually attract one another he first solves the question completely if the force of attraction varies di directly as the distance he next takes the case of the three bodies moving under their mutual attractions as in nature this problem has not been yet solved generally but in newton's day it was beyond any analysis of which he had the command he contrived however to work out roughly the chief effects of the disturbing action of the sun on the motion of the moon proposition sixty six this proposition was singled out by lagrange as the most striking single illustration of the genius of newton to this proposition twenty-two corollaries are appended in which it is applied to determine the motion in longitude in latitude the annual equation the motion of the apse line and of the nodes the evection the change in inclination of the plane of the lunar orbit the precession of the equinoxes and the theory of the tides 
the greater part of the third book consists of the numerical application of these principles to the case of the moon and the earth lastly newton shewed how from the motion of the nodes of the interior constitution of the body could be roughly determined up to this point newton had generally treated the bodies with which he dealt as if they were particles he now proceeds in section twelve to consider the attraction of spherical masses which are either of uniform density or whose density at any point is a single valued function of the distance of the point from the centre of the sphere these are worked out for any law of attraction in section thirteen he gives some general theorems on the theory of attractions and on some propositions dealing with the attractions of solids of revolution but these problems are almost insoluble without the aid of the infinitesimal calculus and the newtonian account of them is incomplete the fourteenth section contains a statement of some theories and experiments in physical optics and a solution by geometry of some problems in geometrical optics particularly on the form of aplanatic refracting surfaces of revolution the second book of the principia is concerned with hydromechanics and especially with motion in a resisting medium these questions are not worked out so completely as those treated in the first book and though this book provided the basis on which much of the subsequent work of daniel bernoulli clairaut d'alembert euler and laplace were erected it is not of the same epoch-making character as the first book this book is divided into nine sections the motion of bodies in a medium where the resistance varies directly as the velocity is considered in the first section the motions where resistance varies as the square of the velocity is discussed in the second section the motion where the resistance can be expressed as a sum of two terms one of which varies as the velocity and the other as the square of the velocity is dealt with in the third section the second section contains proposition twenty five a construction for the shape of the solid of least resistance no proof is given and it had been long somewhat of a mystery to know how newton had contrived to solve the problem without the use of calculus of variations newton's demonstrations there are two of them have been recently discovered in the portsmouth collection the fourth section is devoted to a spiral motion in a resisting medium the fifth to the theory of hydrostatics and elastic fluids the sixth to the motion of pendulums in a resisting medium the seventh to hydrodynamics especially to the motion of projectiles in air and other fluids the eighth to the theory of waves including the principles from which the chief effects of the wave hypotheses in light and sound are calculated and in particular the velocity of sound is determined in the ninth section newton discusses the cartesian theory of vortices he begins by shewing that if there were no internal friction the motion would be impossible he must therefore assume some law of friction and as a working hypothesis he supposes that the resistance arising from want of lubricity in the parts of a fluid is catus peribus proportional to the velocity of which the parts of the fluid are separated from each other 
this hypothesis as he himself remarks is probably not altogether correct but he thinks that it will give a general idea of the motion he next proves that on this hypothesis that the motion would be unstable he must therefore suppose that some constraining force prevents this catastrophe and he then shews that in that case kepler's third law could not be true lastly he shews by independent reasoning that the hypothesis must lead to results which are inconsistent with kepler's other two laws and that both the vortices and the motion of the planets would necessarily be unstable several continental mathematicians made attempts to modify the cartesian hypothesis so as to avoid these conclusions but they could never explain one phenomenon without introducing fresh difficulties it may be taken that by seventeen fifty the cartesian theory was finally abandoned the third book is headed on the system of the world and is concerned chiefly with the application of the results of the first book to the solar system it is introduced by certain rules of philosophizing and as a list of certain data obtained from astronomical observations the rules are one we may only assume as the possible causes of phenomenon such causes as are sufficient to explain them and are also varai causae a varai causa being one which is capable of detection and such that its connection with the phenomenon can be ultimately shewn by independent evidence two effects of a similar kind must have similar causes three whatever properties of bodies are found by experience to be invariable should be assumed to be so in places where direct experiments cannot be made newton commences by illustrating the universality of the law of gravitation and sketches out the principles which lead him to think that the solar system is necessarily stable he determines that the mass of the moon the masses of the planets their distances from the sun and their figures in the first edition he estimated proposition thirty seven that the ratio of the mass of the moon to that of the earth was approximately that of one to twenty six in the second and third editions this was altered to a ratio which is nearly that of one in forty but except for the mass of the moon he approximates to the results now known with astonishing closeness he finds the disturbing force exerted by the sun and the moon and considers the five chief irregularities in the orbit of the moon he next discusses the solar and lunar tides determines the precession of the equinoxes and finally shews how the elements of a comet can be determined by these observations and applies his results to certain comets before this time it had been commonly believed that the comets had nothing to do with the solar system though in sixteen eighty one dorfel had shewn that the path of the great comet of sixteen eighty was a parabola having the sun at its focus lastly the principia is concluded by a general scolium containing the reflection on the constitution of the universe and on the eternal the infinite and perfect being by whom it is governed the chief alterations in the second edition published in seventeen thirteen were the substitutions of simpler proofs for some of the propositions in the second edition of the first book a more full and accurate investigation found on some fresh experiments made by newton about the year sixteen ninety 
and the resistance of fluids in the seventh section of the second book and the addition of a detailed examination of the causes of the precession of the equinoxes and the theory of comets in the third book the chief alterations in the third edition published in seventeen twenty six were in the scolium on fluxions and the addition of a new scolium on the motion of the moon's nodes book three proposition fifty three end of footnote the demonstrations throughout the work are geometrical but to readers of ordinary ability are rendered unnecessarily difficult by the absence of illustrations and explanations and by the fact that no clue is given to the method by which newton arrived at his results the reason why it was presented in a geometrical form appears to have been that the infinitesimal calculus was then unknown and had newton used it to determine the results which were in themselves opposed to the prevalent philosophy of the time the controversy as to the truth of his results would have been hampered by a dispute concerning the validity of the methods used in proving them he therefore cast the whole reasoning into a geometrical shape which if somewhat longer can at any rate be made intelligible to all mathematical students so closely did he follow the lines of greek geometry that he constantly used graphical methods and represented forces velocities and other magnitude in the euclidean way by straight lines book one lemma ten and not by certain number of units the latter and modern method had been introduced by wallace and must have been familiar to newton the effect of his confining himself rigorously to classical geometry is that the principia is written in a language which is archaic even if not unfamiliar the adoption of geometrical methods in the principia for purposes of demonstration does not indicate a preference on newton's part for geometry over analysis as an instrument of research for it is known now that newton used the fluxional calculus in the first instance in finding some of the theorems especially those towards the end of book one and in book two and in fact one of the most important uses of that calculus is stated in book two lemma two but it is only just to remark that at the time of its publication and for nearly a century afterwards the differential and fluxional calculus were not fully developed and did not possess the same superiority over the method he adopted by which they do now and it is a matter of astonishment that when newton did employ the calculus he was able to use it to so good an effect the ability shewn in the translation in a few months of theorems so numerous and of so great complexity into the language of the geometry of archimedes and apollonius is i suppose unparalleled in the history of mathematics the printing of the work was slow and it was not finally published till the summer of sixteen eighty seven the whole cost was borne by halley who also corrected the proofs and even put his own researches on one side to press the printing forward the conciseness absence of illustrations and synthetical character of the book restricted the numbers of those who were able to appreciate its value and though nearly all competent critics admitted the validity of the conclusions some little time elapsed before it affected the current beliefs of educated men i should be inclined to say but on this point opinions differ widely 
that within ten years of its publication it was generally accepted in Britain as giving a correct account of the laws of the universe. It was similarly accepted within about twenty years on the continent, except in France, where the Cartesian hypothesis held its ground until Voltaire in 1738 took up the advocacy of the Newtonian theory. The manuscript of the Principia was finished by 1686. Newton devoted the remainder of that year to his paper on physical optics, the greater part of which is given up to the subject of diffraction. In 1687, James II, having tried to force the university to admit as a master of arts a Roman Catholic priest who refused to take oaths of supremacy and allegiance, Newton took a prominent part in resisting the illegal interference of the king, and was one of the deputation sent to London to protect the rights of the university. The active part taken by Newton in this affair led to his being, in 1689, elected member for the university. This parliament only lasted thirteen months, and on its dissolution he gave up his seat. He was subsequently returned in 1701, but he never took any prominent part in politics. On his coming back to Cambridge in 1690, he resumed his mathematical studies and correspondence. If he lectured at this time, which is doubtful, it was on the subject matter of the Principia. The two letters to Wallace, which he explained his methods of fluxions and fluents, which were written in 1692 and published in 1693. Towards the close of 1692, and throughout the two following years, Newton had a long illness, suffering from insomnia and general nervous irritability. Perhaps he never quite regained his elasticity of mind, and, though after his recovery he shewed the same power in solving any question propounded to him, he ceased thenceforward to do original work of his own initiative, and it was somewhat difficult to stir him to activity in new subjects. In 1694, Newton began to collect data connected with the irregularities of the moon's motion, with the view of revising the part of the Principia which dealt with that subject. To render the observations more accurate, he forwarded to Flamsteed a table of corrections for refraction which he had previously made. This was not published till 1721, when Halley communicated it to the Royal Society. The original calculations of Newton and the papers connected with it are in the Portsmouth collection, and shew that Newton attained it by finding the path of a ray by means of quadratures in a manner equivalent to the solution of a differential equation. As an illustration of Newton's genius, I may mention that even as late as 1754, Euler failed to solve the same problem. In 1782, Laplace gave a rule for constructing such a table, and his results agree substantially with those of Newton. I do not suppose that Newton would, in any case, have produced much more original work after his illness, but his appointment in 1696 as warden, and his promotion in 1699 to the mastership of the Mint, at a salary of £1,500 a year, brought his scientific investigations to an end though it was only after this that many of his previous investigations were published in the form of books. In 1696 he moved to London. In 1701 he resigned the Lucasian chair, and in 1703 he was elected president of the Royal Society. 
End of section 25. Recording by Paul King, Oakville, Ontario. pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj.